Welcome to Meditate and Conversate, a podcast for those interested in wellness and enlightenment. My name is Lindsay Barusing. I am an ERYT 1000 yoga medicine therapeutic specialist and former news anchor specializing in trauma-informed yoga. Today's guest is Colin Hall, who first caught my eye on social media because of his yoga news bits that aren't afraid to dig into yoga scandal, yoga doubters, and even yogis who might be misinformed. So please welcome Colin Hall. Hello. Hi, how's Canada, by the way? It's okay. I, I don't know. Yeah, it's normal. I mean, this is right now, all the snow is gone and it's getting warm and like there's leaves, things are looking green and everyone's in a super duper good mood, which is awesome. Uh, but it's my allergy time of year. So I end up like walking around looking like I'm high half the time. Um, so I don't love that. I thought of you actually, because you start, you start a lot of your bits by saying that it's allergy season mm -hmm. and uh, I, I can't talk correctly. So anyone listening to this yeah. podcast is in for a real <laughs> between the two of us, right? Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> well, I was just yeah. uh, singing your praises in your intro because I think that you have a really nice ability to keep yogis and people who are, I don't know, trying to tear yoga down in an uninformed manner from the outside, all in check at the same time. So will you tell us a little bit about you and then why you kind of got into this yoga news bit? Yeah. Um, well, deep dive, I guess, on me is I, I got into yoga backwards from the way most people get into it. So most people kind of like start with yoga as like a kind of stretching and asana classes, basically doing poses. And they'll gradually get more interested in meditation and philosophy and that kind of thing. Um, I started off before I ever did a single yoga pose. Um, I was studying the Bhagavad Gita and the Yoga Sutras in university classes because I was doing religious studies and that was sort of my research interest. So that was, I think, about five years or so of studying yoga before I ever did any poses. And I thought the poses were actually kind of silly. I didn't like it. <laughs> I didn't. This is going to make me sound snobby, but it's like retroactively snobby, so it's okay. Um, I thought it was um, fake yoga. Like I didn't. I looked at people doing postures, and I was like, "That's not even. That's not even yoga." Um, and it wasn't until I got a job working at a yoga studio, and one of the things I had to do to keep my job was to take yoga classes. Um, so I started taking some yoga classes just to make my boss happy. And uh, I really, really liked it. Like I, I was like, oh, that's why people are doing this stuff because <laughs> it feels really, really good. Um, so that was probably 20 years ago or so. Um, I've been teaching full-time since then. Um, in addition to running a yoga studio here in Regina, Saskatchewan, um, I also teach at the university here and I do sort of classes on yoga history and yoga philosophy. Um, so that's, that's my story. And then the yoga news thing, um, I, um, I was doing a podcast for Yoga International. It's called the Yoga History Podcast. And um, I really enjoyed it. And I started thinking about 
yoga history quite a lot. And I was like, you know, we're actually kind of living in yoga history right now. Like this is actually a really interesting time in yoga's history. And when I'm doing research for things that happened 500 years ago or a thousand years ago, I'm always having a hard time finding sources. And I'm always like, geez, I wish someone just would have been documenting this more. And it occurred to me, we should probably, there's a lot of yoga news out there, but there isn't like a single source, like one package where it's like, this is where, this is where you find out what's going on in the sort of like in the yoga world. Um, so the yoga news is kind of like trying to do future me a favor when they're trying to figure out what was going on at this, at this point in time in, in yoga history. Yeah, I love that. We seem to intersect in a lot of ways. I have a minor in religious studies. Oh, cool. But my classes were more like sexual ethics and, you know, the Bible in Hollywood and studying film and things of that sort. But it was just so interesting. Uh, so I'm right there with you on those. And the philosophy really for me came first as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Cool. That's not, that's not the normal path. What are your favorite tidbits that you've been uncovering lately in the yoga news? Um, well, you know, one, this is going to sound kind of glib and silly, but one that I, I literally just published five minutes ago um, was about Kristen Bell. She's in this show called The Good Place. Have you ever seen it? It's really, really funny. It's like- I've never seen The Good Place, but she's in yeah. so many other things. That I she know. is in a lot of stuff, yeah. Um, so on Mother's Day, her husband posted a picture of her doing yoga naked. So it's just like, not much, it's just her bum. Um, and yeah, it was just like, I, I, I heard a lot about Kristen Bell's bum on Mother's Day. <laughs> and the story's not really about Kristen Bell or her bum. It's really about um, this really interesting, I see like a lot of tension actually in yoga today between on the one hand, people who are, using yoga for like body positivity. Uh, so posting naked yoga pictures of yourself as a way of saying like, I'm okay with how I look. I don't think I need to change anything. Uh, and, and using that as a source of empowerment versus people on the other hand who are more in the sort of take back yoga camp of like, um, yoga has become appropriated and is sort of characterized by a lot of sort of colonial thinking, needs to be more traditional. Um, and those people would look at naked yoga photos as being like pretty offensive actually to their culture. And it's fascinating because I feel like both people are actually doing work that I support. They don't agree at all. Like they would butt heads, I think, but uh, it's really such a weird situation to be in, to be like, oh, that's actually, you're both right, kind of. <laughs> but you can't both be right, or can you? How big is this tent that we're in? Like, can, is there room for all of us inside of it? Um, so that's, the stories that I like are always like ones that don't have the simple angle, that one thing where you're like, oh, like Bikram. It's kind of easy, actually. What's easy? Bikram. It's pretty easy to report on that news. You're like, yeah, no, he's uh, 
he's kind of a dirt bag. <laughs> you know, he's not a very good person. Um, that's that's pretty straightforward, I think. Uh, that's not that's not really going to cause a lot of thinking, right? That's not gonna that's not gonna make anyone scratch their heads and go like, hmm, where do I come down on that issue? I think everyone comes almost everyone anyway comes down on the yeah Bikram's not a good guy side of that issue like the Kristen Bell issue um you know I'm rereading the science of yoga again by William J Broad because I love his take and his curation of of um facts but he has one part where he talks about now at this point in history there's so many different types of yoga and what it's used for and what the ends you know what people want to get out of it that maybe the better term is yogas. Mm -hmm. right? Yeah, totally agree. Totally agree. The um, So the first episode of the Yoga History Podcast starts with me talking about just that, that there is no, the idea that there is one narrative. Yoga started in whatever time BC, you want to just make up your mind at your starting point. And it's kind of changed over the years and it's evolved and there's been different things coming and going and all of that has kind of led to where we are now. Um, that's, I think, the narrative that kind of people have in their mind that yoga started at point A and has evolved to point B. The narrative has not been straightforward at all. Like historically, there has been a number of different yogas practiced by people that very often didn't get along and did not see eye to eye. Um, and you, you, you see that really clearly when you study yoga history. And you also now see it today really clearly. And I think, you know, one of the, one of the things that's, and this is again, coming back to sort of this intersection of um, yoga history with yoga news is that um, it, it feels sometimes like yoga has gone off the rails a little bit or that it's, it's, it's fractured and, and it's, it's broken in a way that it's never been before. But I think when you look back at yoga history, you actually see this is totally normal. Uh, yoga is always kind of contested. There's always a number of different voices who are like putting up their hand and saying, I, I, am, the, I am the real authentic yoga. Um, and so it's, it's no surprise that that's happening today. And that's sort of, it's one of the things that I'm kind of most fascinated in is this idea of like, whose yoga is it anyway? Um, that was a riff on whose line is it anyway? It was not a very good riff. I enjoyed it. Yeah. Um, one of the things that I find really challenging about yoga history is that there aren't a lot of clear sources, right? And there are a lot of different people who say it was this way. And then I find out from another good source, oh, maybe it wasn't that way. Can you shed some light on maybe some one or two cool things in yoga history that you found that you don't think most people who are geeky about yoga like me might be privy to? Sure. Um, okay. At the beginning of almost every yoga book ever in the history of yoga books, um, there's a section that says yoga is 5,000 years old. It's almost become like a given, like these days when you ask people, how old is yoga? People who know yoga anyway, people that don't know yoga have no idea. Uh, but people who know yoga, that 5,000 number, um, it just seems to be in our heads at this point. And what they're referring to is the seal that was discovered in this town called Mahenjadaro. 
Uh, it's where Pakistan is today. And the seal has a picture of what looks like somebody doing yoga. They're sitting on a little platform. They've got their legs crossed. And sure, it sure looks like someone meditating or something. Um, and so people just assumed this must be a picture of someone doing yoga. Therefore, the seal is 5,000 years old. Therefore, yoga was 5,000 years old. Uh, the problem is that we, <laughs> we've since discovered a lot of other images from around that time of people sitting cross-legged in the exact same way that person on the seal is sitting cross-legged and they're kings. That's the way nobility sat. Um, this not, it wasn't associated with yoga at all. In fact, um, the whole notion of sitting cross-legged and meditating at that time seems to kind of be unheard of. Like it's not, there is no evidence that yoga is 5,000 years old. When we start to see it in the Vedas and mentioned in the Vedas that you start to think it gains validity or where do you think it gains validity as a practice or a philosophy? Yeah, I mean, in, in the Vedas, that word is there. Um, but when you look at the context the word is used in, it's usually referring to like agriculture. So it's yoking a plow to an oxen or yoking two oxen together or yoking a horse and a chariot together. Uh, they don't really talk about meditation at all, actually. Um, so the word yoga is in the Vedas and uh, later, later texts, uh, the Upanishads, that are attempting to kind of interpret or shed more light on what the Vedas really mean. Those are the texts that start sort of like breaking down. Oh, they weren't talking about oxen and plow. Those are actually metaphors for something else. And so in some of the later texts around a thousand or so BCE. So, I mean, it's still old, <laughs> like it's not 5,000 years old, 3,000. <laughs> <laughs> so it's still, it's still super duper old uh, but yeah it's not really until the until the Upanishads uh, that people start sort of explaining what yoga is and, and talking about uh, yoga as a sort of a, a vehicle for uh, human freedom interesting well, yeah that tidbit yeah can I give you one more one a little another little another little nugget okay here's a really cool one um, so I think I think most of us um, for, for good reasons, or maybe just because it's just sort of what we have learned, accept the yoga sutras as a source of authority in yoga. Um, I personally have some doubts as to whether or not that book is particularly authoritative or should be taken as authoritative, but that's a different conversation altogether um, and a great way for me to get canceled. So uh, but <laughs> um, so if we if we take the yoga sutras as being sort of authoritative in yoga, I think a lot of us have this idea that we are we are on our on the surface. We seem separate. We seem like separate people. I have my little sack of skin and you have yours. And so we're different. But at at the level of like consciousness or like at, at the level of awareness at some level, we all sort of share, we're the same basically. Um, and in the yoga sutras, they have the exact opposite position. It could not be more different than our typical, the way we typically understand oneness. Oneness is not at the level of consciousness. Oneness is at the level of our physical bodies. So more like Gaia theory, um, we all basically sort of 
we're all stardust came from this gas floating around in the universe and it cooled into this ball and the ball started like making weird things and we're one of the weird things that came out of this ball in the sky um and that is all one so at the level of like stuff and materiality we're all the same that's where our oneness is at the level of consciousness when you start to meditate there are a number like millions and millions of different purushas different consciousnesses so your awareness is actually only yours my awareness is only mine and meditation doesn't make us more one meditation actually makes us more alone uh, we get further and further away from each other the more we meditate so you're saying that we're not actually going to are we actually though going to see that purusha as opposed to prakriti and like that veil of reality you know like the veil goes away and we see reality still and we're just alone yes what i'm hearing you say yeah that like in the, in the yoga sutras you don't enter this state of oneness where it's like oh you know we're all holding hands and everything's just beautiful and we can just sort of join a commune and grow tofu together uh, you actually you actually kind of disappear into yourself and the other no longer exists. There is nobody else. It's just you and you alone. Um, and that typically is not what people have in mind when they go to a yoga class. They're not like, hey, I can't can't wait to be more alone. No, that sounds like my personal hell. <laughs> but I'm up for it if that's reality, right? In the pursuit of reality. So then would are you trying to get closer to a source is there still a source in the way that you're interpreting that um the source would be you like there is no other there is no other source other than you um so yeah you you would be moving further away from the earth uh further away from other people uh and you would no longer be associating or sort of like connecting with people that way you'd be they would actually kind of disappear to you. So this is really interesting to me. Whose interpretation do you kind of go by of the Yoga Sutras? Um, there's, there's a bunch that I like quite a lot. Um, that interpretation right there leans pretty heavily on a guy named Philip Moss. Um, there's Philip Moss I really like. Um, uh, Oh, what's his name? White. David Gordon White is another one. Um, he's just my, he's kind of my yoga crush. I've told my wife, be careful. If I ever meet David Gordon White, it could be a problem. See you later. <laughs> <laughs> David Gordon White, if you're listening, don't find this creepy. Respect your work. Okay. I'm not going to get you canceled, but you've piqued my interest. Are you willing to say why you think maybe we shouldn't take the Yoga Sutras uh, as the word? Um, yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, so it seems to me, I'll preface this by saying, in my opinion, <laughs> um, that the Yoga Sutras were translated into English by the British, um, in an effort to try to better understand the way Indians thought so that they could rule over India more effectively. 
um, because that book ended up being the one that was translated into English, that one in the Bhagavad Gita, um, anyone who was interested in yoga, that's the one they read. It was the one that was translated into English. Now, the people that translated it weren't like, oh, this is the authoritative source on yoga. They were like, this is a book that has a bunch of rules in it, like the eight limbs. Uh, and that might be a way that we can better uh, determine how to kind of like integrate British common law into law in India. Um, and so they weren't thinking this is a great book on yoga. They were thinking this is, might be a great book to help us better control this country. But because it happens to be the one translated into English, it's the one that everyone reads. And they, because it's the one they read, assume that it must be the most important one. Now, my take on it is there are thousands of books that could have taken the place of the Yoga Sutras. They could have been the one that got translated. Um, and probably there are a number of books right now untranslated in India that would be much more in line with the way we think about yoga. Uh, because I, I think that the yoga that's in the Yoga Sutras um, it doesn't really align with the way people practice yoga here at all. Like it's, it's, it's really designed for people that are going to leave society and not really have families and not really have relationships and jobs. Um, it's not really sort of what we call like a householder's style of yoga. It's definitely a renunciate's yoga. Um, so it's to use that as your like touchstone for what is real or what is authentic. I think sets up a lot of conflict in people's minds where um, they are like, I think what people tend to say is I just don't get it. I read the yoga sutras and I just don't get it because it doesn't align with the way they practice or the way they think about yoga. Uh, and maybe a more accurate way to say that would be like, no, I do get it. <laughs> I absolutely do understand what they're saying there. And I disagree. That's not the way, that's not what yoga means to me. That's not how I choose to practice. And that's the part where people get pissed off at me. Yeah, but I, yeah. I respect the fact that you kind of are that reality check. I mean, you're not afraid to say that. And I think it's because on one hand, it's interesting because you, you've invested your life in yoga. You teach yoga, you manage a studio, you have done podcasts about it. You talk about it on social media, but you're also not afraid to say what you think needs to be scrutinized. Right? Yeah. I think that's an important function. I, I, I would hope that more people would feel the same way. I don't know that they do these days. I think there's a lot of nervousness about uh, saying the wrong thing and stepping in a big pile of steaming trouble. Um, but I, uh, you know, one of, one of my religious studies heroes is this guy named Bruce Lincoln. And Bruce Lincoln has this quote that I, I think I, I probably read it in like, 1999 or something like that but the quote was like um i'm gonna butcher the quote a little bit here paraphrase it's like when when um good conscience and good manners conflict with one another i'm gonna choose conscience every time so even though i could potentially come off as being rude um I would rather come off as be rude than insincere. I, I would rather not lie. I'd rather not be like, oh no, 
Yoga Sutras. Amazing. I have a TED Talk that I rather enjoyed. And I like how, um, again, the honesty, because a lot of people, when they subscribe to a philosophy, whether it's a religion or a way of life, um, they tend to just kind of gloss over the things that um, need to be fixed. And you really get into um, dismantling some of these, I don't know, romantic beliefs about yoga. Mm-hmm. What do you think? Is there anything from that talk that you want to highlight or one that you think is popular since that talk that you think is kind of like catching people up in a way that is, eh, I don't know, maybe getting them off of the yogic path instead of on it? Yeah, that's, I mean, that's a really good one. That's a great question. I, I'm not, I'm not sure I have a good answer for you. Um, I, I would probably need to go back and rewatch the talk, to be honest with you. <laughs> like, it, it's, it's been a while. Uh, but, you know, I think, I think there's something in that talk about like a oneness delusion. And, and it relates a little bit to what we talked about with the Yoga Sutras and this idea that um, we are, we're all one. Um, and I, I think, I think it, it's dawning on people now that though we can say we're all one over and over and over again, as it turns out, we're not we're just not, we're very different. We see things differently. We have very different perspectives. And, you know, you can beat people over the head with oneness all day, just be like, trust me, we're all one, but you have to really feel it to like, you can do that, but I don't think that it works. Um, I think ultimately people will disagree with you. Uh, People will say, no, you're wrong. Uh, people will say, no, the way you're doing things is incorrect. Uh, you should do it this way instead. Um, and there's going to be conflict. And this idea that we are all one doesn't get rid of the conflict. I think all it really does is try to end conversations. Um, so if I bring up something problematic, people are like, oh, we're all one. You're not seeing that correctly. Therefore, you're deluded problem solved if only you could see things better than you currently do then you would agree with me um and because then we would be all one uh, but you're causing co- uh, conflict and you're causing division in the yoga community by saying these things uh, and i i think it's I, I hope it's pretty clear at this point pointing out divisions is not causing divisions I would say though, too, even if there is conflict, like I am one person, there is conflict within me, you know? Oh yeah. So that doesn't, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Never mind. Are we not, not only are we not all one, even I'm not all one. (laughs) What are you focusing on in uh, your own practice or in your own teachings right now? Like what, what are you believing in and digging yourself into? Um, Right for the last two or three years I have been largely kind of off standing postures and back bends and inversions and arm balances I'll still do it every now and again for fun uh, but for the most part uh, for me it's all like down regulation like it's relaxation gentle stretches rhythmic movements um a lot of meditation, a lot of pranayama, and um, I, 
I'm, I'm more and more convinced actually that we are all suffering a kind of a, a sort of a, a traumatic stress response right now uh, that the world is kind of increasingly intense um, and hard to get away from too. Like it's hard to not see what's going on around you just in terms of like wars and climate change and pandemic stuff and inequality. And it's just like this, it's just so much that anybody who's even remotely paying attention is probably stressed out. And so that, that to me is where yoga can really be beneficial. It's where it's, it's helped me a ton. Um, not in terms of um, being like, everything's just fine. <laughs> no problem. <laughs> Climate change. Cool. Um, I, that's, that's not it, but um, being able to kind of, address these things with my family and in my personal life without being all wound up and tense about it that I can address these problems that are real in a way that's relaxed and calm because I feel like freaking out is about the absolute worst thing that we could do right now like I think what the world needs is more level heads and people just being able to kind of calmly have a discussion about something and that that doesn't mean there isn't reasons for people to be angry there's lots and lots of reasons for people to be angry right now and I think you should definitely feel that anger but in terms of its effect on you I, I, I don't feel like it's going to actually help in the long run. I feel like it's actually going to act as a kind of poison. Um, and the, you know, the, the anger, like I said, it's legitimate for a lot of people, very legitimately angry right now, but needing, I think, to kind of deal with that and relax their nervous systems um, so that we can better find solutions. Yeah, and maybe take a beat to figure out where that anger could best be used as positive fuel. And positive that's, yeah, that like that step back, eh? Yeah. Like oh, that's. I got the Canadian, the A. <laughs> oh, I did it. You did it. Anyway. Shit. <laughs> <laughs> no, but not to take away from the serious of, of that though, but it is really, I mean, it's <laughs> take back, like take a, take a beat. Yeah. And then realize that maybe this this anger is useful in this direction in this vehicle and not just as a for sure yeah and and then and then sometimes that you know it, it is actually not justified anger either right that it, it happened to kind of trigger something else in you and once you are able to kind of step back for a second take a breath you can hopefully recognize I am having angry thoughts. That does not mean I am angry. Those are two different things. Um, and ideally, that's what yoga and meditation are showing people. Um, I'm not sure how much, how much of that people get in most yoga classes. Um, but hopefully that is what's happening. That's definitely what I'm, what I'm working on is uh, more kind of self-inquiry um, and trying to observe my thoughts rather than becoming my thoughts. 
I like that. Yeah, it seems to me I always ask yoga students when they come in what they need that day, because obviously I've got a plan, but it, mm -hmm. it will go to waste if it's not needed. And I've seen it shift and more people are saying exactly what you're saying is that they are overstressed, over inundated, and they really just want that, that relaxation and that downregulation. So, yeah. So, you know, and it's interesting because I, I don't, <laughs> I don't know that, um, uh, how to say, I don't know that business wise, that has been the best move that I've made as a business owner, shifting the business more in terms of uh, relaxation and calming and that kind of thing. Um, sometimes I wonder, had we just stuck with like hot yoga and yoga dance parties and yoga workouts and core strengths and all that kind of stuff, uh, if the business might be doing better. So, yeah, I mean, I, it's interesting, you know, like I, 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 I stand by it. I think it is the right decision for me. I think it's the right, it's the right thing that most people need right now, but just because it's the thing that people need doesn't necessarily mean it's the thing that they want. And I think a lot of yoga businesses have to kind of contend with that, um, that, you know, what's right for yoga, uh, what's right for the world right now, uh, may not be right for your bank account. Hmm. Sad, but true. Yeah. Yeah. I just read this really, it was kind of a dumb article, actually. I didn't like it very much, but in the article, uh, they're talking about things that are wrong with yoga uh, right now. And uh, one, one of the points that they brought up was that basically like the more you do to try to make yoga more accessible and more inclusive, the higher the standard that you will be held to. And so you end up getting attacked more for trying to help more. And she ended the article basically by saying like, um, what the line, it was like some catchy little zinger. It was like a Fox news kind of zinger. It was like a, um, go, go woke and you'll go broke or something like that. Uh, and it was funny because when I read it, I was like, Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. But as I pondered on it, I was like, well, she, she's got a point to like, it's there, there, there is, there is definitely a business case to be made for not caring very much. <laughs> Just being like, yeah, no, whatever sells, yeah, whatever sells, that's what we do. Uh, and um, yeah, that's, that's not the decision we're going to go in at all. But for someone who decided that that was what they wanted to do, I, I would understand. I wouldn't necessarily agree or be on board or anything like that. But if, if someone was really honestly with me just being like, you know what, I know, I hear you, uh, but hot yoga, core workout, booty burn uh, sells. And so we're going to blast Tupac Shakur. Uh, we're going to get half naked. We're going to sweat our faces off. Uh, and that's it. That's all we're going to do. Uh, I'd be like, yeah, I get it. I understand. You know, like if you need to keep a business afloat, cool. But I mean, it's one of the reasons why I, I have a job. Like uh, I, Pak Shakur and half naked yoga classes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I have a job 
at the university so that I don't need to rely on Tupac Shakur and half-naked yoga classes. We have a lot of freedom uh, to be able to kind of like run the business the way we want to rather than the way we have to. Um, if, if my family depended on our yoga studio, oh my Lord, if my, fam oh, if my family depended on our yoga studio, uh, the last two years would have been horrendous. It would have been so bad. We would have lost our house for sure. I can't even imagine. People ask me all the time, like, oh my gosh, you aspire to own your own yoga studio. And I say, I respect the shit out of people who own yoga studios, but it's so hard. That's not an aspiration of mine because I see you guys put in so much, so much work. You're everything. Yeah. You're, you're everything. And especially during this time, I don't even know how you're, you're still open. So congratulations. Yeah. Thanks. The bulk of us too are not business people. We're like yoga people. So it's like, it's, it's a rough combination. You're like, I have no idea accounting and marketing and all that stuff. Just like, ah, eh, I don't know. It'll probably be cool. <laughs> it's like the business stuff. It's not until the accountant asks for it when the taxes are due. And then I'm like, I should probably add this up and see if I made any money this year. Yeah. <laughs> On that note, let's talk about where, where do you want yoga to go? Like in your ideal world, where would this kind of shift to? Because everything's changing so quickly these days. Mm -hmm. um, so in um, more yoga history, in 1893, this guy named Swami Vivekananda comes to America from India. Um, incidentally, took a train from Vancouver through Regina, Saskatchewan, uh, got to Winnipeg in Manitoba and then took a train down to Chicago. So Vivekananda kind of starts this era that we call modern yoga, that I call modern yoga. It's when yoga kind of is exported from India and goes around the world. And Regina first. Um, actually, the train station is now a casino. So Swami Vivekananda was at Casino Regina. Um, but so that's, that, that's, that's a really fun little aside, but the main thing is he, when he gets to this parliament of world religions in, at the world's fair in 1893 in Chicago, he has a lot of really interesting, he has like four different speeches that he gives in one of the speeches. He says that yoga is basically a seed and it's a seed that came from a tree that grew originally in India. But he's now taking that seed and planting it in America. And he has no expectation whatsoever that it's gonna look like the tree that grew in India. The soil is different, you know, the air is different, the nutrients are different. And um, like, like any plant that you take from one part of the world and, and introduce to another part of the world, it's gonna grow differently. Uh, it's going to look different. And it's not really in this speech, he says, he talks about it uh, more in terms of religions and less in terms of yoga. But what he says is like, it's not, it, Christians should not try to become Hindus. Hindus should not try to become Christians. We should just it, learn from each other, right? Practice together, learn from one another. And when when I read some of these speeches that he gave in 1893, I was like, I think we could just follow his advice. And 
let's not try to make yoga one thing. Let's allow it to be a number of different things as it grows in different contexts. It ends up looking quite different. And so someone who's a bit of a purist might look at it and be like, your yoga tree kind of sucks because it doesn't look like my yoga tree. My yoga tree is the original one. Uh, but they're all yoga trees. And I think that it's possible for us to actually sort of like connect over it and use yoga practice to sort of build a actual sort of global community uh, where we don't all need to believe one thing. We can have a community of practice where it's not based on beliefs. It's not like, what do you believe is true? What do I believe is true? We need to believe the same things for us to be friends. We can believe completely different things, but have the same practice, right? We, we, we practice together. And when we do that, we're like, hey, you also kind of snore a little bit when you do Shavasana? So do I, <laughs> you know what I mean? You, all, you also have your tummy kind of grumble sometimes when you're in twists. My tummy grumbles when I'm in twists. And it becomes something that really could, I think, bring us together really effectively. And um, that's really I, I ultimately what I hope for is that, you know, somebody could go to India, go to a yoga class and be like, this is my people, right? You can go to Russia, join, get into a yoga class in Russia and be like, whatever else is going on in the world, I can connect with these people, right? This, this, is, this is a practice that I understand. And there's like a language of yoga that can be accessed through the practice that sort of cuts through a lot of the ideology and a lot of the identity that makes it seem like we can't possibly get along. Um, and that is incredibly idealistic. And I can, I can already hear the voices of all the people telling me how naive it is. And to those people, um, I don't care. That's my vision and I'm sticking to it. Thank you so much to Colin Hall for his time here today on the podcast. If you like our show, please rate us, share us because good things don't survive without support. We'll see you in two weeks.